would be greatly appreciated. So this week we are four weeks from the end of the year. We're, <laughs> we're getting very close from the end of the Torah, sorry. We're getting very, very close. Um, a week from Monday night on Labor Day is going to be Rosh Hashanah. Um, it's been, I think, almost 30 years since um, Rosh Hashanah has been on Labor Day, but it's happened again. Um, and so a week from Monday night is going to be Rosh Hashanah. Um, and um, just after that, we continue reading the end of the Torah. We're going to finish the Torah on Simchat Torah, which is three weeks, just over three weeks after Rosh Hashanah. So this week's parsha is called Nitzavim. It means standing, and it begins with the words, "You are." Moses is speaking to the people, last very, very end of his life, and he tells them, you are all standing together, your heads of your tribes, your elders, your officers, every man of Israel, every person of Israel, um, the children, the women, converts, um, everybody together is all standing together to join a covenant with God. And they made a covenant Two, this is the second covenant. They made one at Mount Sinai, and now they make a second covenant. And the, um, the difference between the first covenant and the second covenant, our sages say, is that in the second covenant, they included what we call in Hebrew arvut, or guarantors. In other words, we became, not only did we agree that we would follow God's commandments, but we agreed that we would ensure that every other Jew follows God's commandments. So we essentially are all responsible to ensure that everybody else follows God's commandments. So they made the second covenant again at, um, they make the second covenant right before they cross into the promised land. Moses tells them about, again, he had mentioned that last week, if you don't follow God's commandments, then he will... Um, drive you out of the land, destroy the land like he did to Sodom and Amoras and uh, the, the cities that he had destroyed. And so you are all responsible to make sure that not just you follow the commandments, but that the entire people follow the commandments. And then Moses tells the people that when you do transgress, you do sin, and you do get exiled from the land, God will you will eventually return to God. God will gather you from the four corners of the earth um, and God will bring you back to the promised land. And then when that happens, God will circumcise your hearts so that you will automatically love God and serve God without any evil inclination or any desire to do evil anymore. So we're, this is the prediction of the future times of the coming of Moshiach, that there will be a time when all of Israel will be gathered back to the promised land. We will all return to, our, to the land from the four corners of the earth, and then we will no longer sin, we will no longer have that evil inclination. And we've done a class in the past discussing Moshiach. Um, then Moses tells them that the commandments that I'm telling you don't think they're difficult. They're very easy. They're not wondrous. They're not over the sea. They're not in the heavens. They're easy. They're close to you. Anybody is able to fulfill them. And then uh, Moses continues to tell them that I am placing before you life and death, good and bad. It's, your, it's up to you. Choose the right thing. Choose life. Choose, um, follow God's commandments and that way you will live, you will succeed.
So that's the parsha. It's a very, very short parsha. The last four parshas are all very short. Um, it's very short, but that's the parsha in. So that's the short parsha. Uh, just an overview. Any questions? So we are now um, just over a week before Rosh Hashanah, <laughs> counting down the days. There's just um, nine days to go. Starts Monday night. Nine days, including today. Um, we. As is custom in the month of Elul, we blow the shofar. Um, last night at midnight, we read the Selichot, the special prayer that we read. Uh, we start reading every morning. We, we, the first one we do the Saturday night before Rosh Hashanah. Um, when it's a Rosh Hashanah, it's the beginning of the week, we do a week, a little bit over a week before Rosh Hashanah. We start at midnight, and then every day this week, we read these special prayers um, in the morning, uh, every Every morning, that is, uh, we get up early and we read these um, special slichot, which are prayers. We ask God for forgiveness um, and special poems, asking God for a good year. And then, of course, we're getting ready for Rosh Hashanah next Monday night. And uh, we will have services here. We encourage you all to join. Um, we have free tickets. And um, I think we're out of free tickets, but we're getting more um, next day or so. And so um, definitely invite others to join. And uh, we'll, we will be outdoors over here. We'll have a big service here outdoors, socially distanced, so we will all be stay safe. Um, so we definitely encourage you to join us for our channel. We'll have a big dinner here also on Monday night. So then services on Tuesday and Wednesday. We'll talk about that more in detail on next Sunday. For now, I'd like to blow the chauffeur, and then we'll get to our topic for today. Okay, so with that, I'm going to catch my breath. Take a drink. Initially, when the people of Israel first entered the Promised Land after the death of Moses, led by Moses' successor, Joshua, every single Jewish male got a plot of land in the land of Israel. And that plot of land was, would stay in the family for many, many generations. The Torah says that starting from the year that they finish conquering the land and dividing it, they have to count six years. The seventh year will be a Shemitah year. Every seven years when the Shemitah year comes, they're to let the, lie land, the land lie fallow and not work the land during the Shemitah year. And the Torah warns us that if you do not observe the Shemitah, you will be exiled from your land over not observing the Shemitah year. The land will throw you out if you don't follow the Shemitah, the sabbatical year. And indeed, later our prophets told us that we were exiled, we were being sent into exile because of our failure to observe the Shemitah year. So 
We've been counting the Shemitah years ever since they entered the land over 3,000 years ago. And according to our tradition, the coming year 5782 is going to be a Shemitah year. How do we know? So we've been counting. We've kept track. But if we want to go backwards for a frame of reference, the Talmud tells us that the year of the destruction of the temple, the year of the destruction of the temple was the year after a Shemitah year. So year one in the cycle of Shemitah years. Now there's some debate over the exact year of the destruction, but generally we believe the destruction was in the year 70 of our current counting, or in the Jewish year of 3830. The year 3830. We're now 5782. Right? So just over 1900, almost 2000 years ago. So we believe that that was the year after a Shemitah year. And so then the year before that, the year 69 or 3829 would have been a Shemitah year. If you count forward, um, 5782 is 1953 years later after the destruction of the temple, uh, or after year 69, 152 years after the destruction of the temple. And so this would be the 279th Shemitah since the destruction of the temple. Now, they definitely counted before the destruction of the temple, going all the way back to when they entered the land. However, there's some debate among scholars in the Talmud exactly how they were counting previously. There's different opinions. Possibly the counting structure changed uh, when we stopped keeping the Jubilee year, the Yovel year. Um, there's some debate over exactly when they started. So, but we do know that we counted the year 69 or 5829 as a Shemitah year, the year before the structure of the temple. And we've been counting every seven years since. And if you work it out, it's going to be exactly 279 years, 279 cycles of seven years. Um, next year, 5782, or I guess we're not there yet, but 2022, 2021, 2022 will be the um, coming Shemitah year. Yes, Annette? The year starting next week. Yes. This coming Rosh Hashanah will be 5782. We're now in 5781. We are about to enter 5782. So what if you have things that are growing in a garden, vegetables that are growing in a garden that aren't ready to harvest? Excellent question. So what exactly does the Shemitah year entail? During the Shemitah year, we are forbidden to plow the land or plant any crops, excuse me, only in the land of Israel, in the holy land of Israel. Outside the land of Israel, there is no prohibition. But in the land of Israel, we're forbidden from plowing the land or planting any crops. Now, where exactly is the land of Israel? This is not the modern land of Israel, state of Israel. But this is the holy land of Israel that was declared holy by our ancestors. Now there is some debate on exactly where that land is today. And we did a class some years back, you may recall, on the exact 
borders of the land of Israel. We did it with a PowerPoint, with maps. We, we showed you the different borders of the land of Israel. So, uh, Lewis remembers that. And so, um, the, we do know that the land of Israel, the original land of Israel, went further north than our current state of Israel, but did not go as far south as our current state of Israel. Eilat, for example, and even Gaza are definitely outside the original land of Israel where we would have to keep the Shemitah year. We would be forbidden from plowing or planting during this year. What about crops? You don't, cannot plant any crops in the land of Israel. But what about crops that grow on their own? Such as fruit. On fruit trees, they're going to grow on their own, even though you're not planting and you're not treating the trees at all. They're still, they may not grow as well without the fertilizers, but they'll still, they'll still grow. Um, and uh, even the fields, there will be leftover seeds that will fall in the ground, and there will be some grain, at least, that will grow in the fields, even without being planted. So we are, those things that grow on their own, we are allowed to harvest them, but only for our personal household use. We're not allowed to harvest them for sale. We're allowed to ha harvest them for our own use. We're even allowed to harvest them and store them in our house as long as there is still that fruit or that grain available in the fields. Anyone can get it. So we can harvest grapes that grew in the Shemitah year on their own. And as long as there's still grapes on the vines, we can keep them in our home. As soon as there are no more grapes on the vines, we have to, we have to get, we're not allowed to hold them anymore. Because no, no access to anybody else, we're not allowed to store for ourselves. Yes, Don? Do we still have to leave the percentage no, of the No, no. So all the, the tithes, no, the corners of the fields and the tithes do not apply in the Shemitah year. Because all the crops that grow on their own are considered ownerless. They belong to nobody, and anybody can walk into any field and collect it. Even if they're left over from last year and not harvested? No. The, anything that grew in the sixth year belongs to whoever owns the field. Anything that grew in the seventh year is ownerless. If it grew in the sixth year, but you didn't harvest it till after Rosh Hashanah, but it grew earlier, before Rosh Hashanah, you cannot... Um, you, you cannot take it. That belongs to the owner of the field and they're able to harvest it. Anything that grows the same way in the seventh year, even after the next year, Rosh Hashanah, it's already the next year, it's already year one of the next cycle, um, but it already it had grown in the previous year that, um, that belongs to anyone, anyone's allowed to take it. So anything that grows during the Shemitah year, how exactly you define growth is somewhat complicated. And um, there's um, somewhat complex laws as to exactly how much it has to have grown. Uh, for fruit, it has to be ready to pick. Um, for grain, it has to even have grown a bit. But there's different laws as to exactly how much it has to have grown to be considered part of the um, Shemitah year. Yes? I'm going to get to that soon. Excellent question. Do they abide by it in Israel today? Excellent question. What do people eat? That's a very good question. I'm going to get to that one as well. <laughs> All your questions are going to be answered. <laughs> so, that's okay. It doesn't hurt to ask. Of course, you're right. Exactly. <laughs> so, 
Um, so the fruit that we do pick on our own in Shemitah year for our own use of our households, not to sell, is considered holy. We're only allowed to use it for human consumption. We're not allowed to give it to our animals. The animals can eat themselves. We can put them in the fields and let them eat on their own. We're not allowed to give it to animals. We're also forbidden from destroying it. It's considered holy. So we're not allowed to destroy it. Even the pits of the fruits that you... You're not allowed to destroy it. You've got to bury it or leave it to rot on its own. You cannot burn it in an incinerator. You cannot destroy it because it's considered holy. Also, the holy fruits from the land from the Shemitah year are forbidden to, from being removed from the land of Israel. They cannot be exported. So if you pick a fruit in Shemitah and it's, you walked into a field and you picked the fruit and then you got onto a plane, you can't take that fruit with you. Right? Even if you have maybe a bottle of wine from Shemitah, you gotta, you're not allowed to take that bottle with you outside the land of Israel. It must remain within the land of Israel. Now, if you're not very good at farming, or you don't live near the fields, and you really aren't going to go to the field yourself and pick food, there's another option. And that is a group of people can get together, or an entire town and city can get together, even the entire country can get together and create what they call today a co-op, a non-profit co-op, where they hire people for labor costs to go pick the fruit for them and then divide it among all of them, give it to all of them, and then they just pay for just the costs of the labor and bring it to their home, kind of like they do today, these farm co-ops, uh, where people end up with so we're allowed to do that and we know during the second temple period they definitely did that because people were more urbanized and a lot of people living in the cities were not going to go to the fields and pick fruit or pick grain but they wanted food they wanted fresh fruit and so they created these co-ops and they would pay people at cost um, to be able to divide it equally um, without making a profit this is called the term for this is called Otser Bezdin, or the court collection. It's essentially a co-op, and we're allowed to do that. People could collect it for everyone, but then, again, you cannot make money on it. You cannot, uh, you give everyone what they need. They could pay the costs of hiring someone to pick it, but you cannot, nobody owns it. Anyone's allowed to take it from any field, and it doesn't, nobody can stop anyone else from picking and uh, again, you cannot make use it as a prophet. And even then, it can only be used in the land of Israel. It must be eaten with the Kedushas Shvius, with the holiness of the seventh year, in that we cannot just give it to our animals or destroy it. Now, the Torah mentions, as Debbie asked a moment ago, that people will ask, where are they going to get food in the Shemitah year? You don't plant. Where are you going to get grain from? Very little grain is going to grow on its own. How are you going to have grain? Where are you going to have fruits from? Where are you going to have food from? So God says in the Torah that if we observe the Shemitah year, He will bless us. And we will have enough crops growing in the sixth year that will help keep us through the Shemitah, keep us through the seventh year. So we should keep the Shemitah year and God will bless us and take care of us. And we should rely on God. He will take care of us. Do not worry. You will be okay. There will be enough food. And you will be fine. Trust God. 
rely on God, everything will be okay. So why did God tell us to rest the land every seventh year? So there are many, many reasons. Let me take questions before we move on. Any questions? I have one. Can you water the field but not plant? Can you water the field? We're not supposed to work the fields at all. So whatever they water naturally or whatever is there already, I don't believe we're supposed to water the fields. We're not supposed to work the fields at all. It rains, natural rain. What about non-fruit-bearing trees? Non-fruit-bearing. No, then that, that doesn't belong to anyone. Just the just food. Oh, okay. Prohibition so food. Plants and flowers and that kind of stuff. Can you plant them? Not plant them, but water them. I believe so. I, I you know what? I'm not. I don't know the laws offhand. I can't tell you the details, but I believe so. Yes. What about uh, debts? I'm going to get to that. Very good question. What about absolving debts? We'll get to that. So there's a number of reasons given for the... Um, I should mention, I didn't mention earlier, when we do the co-op, you can even have the co-op make wine, produce, use the grapes and produce wine and give everyone bottles of wine or produce olive oil, right, from the olives, a lot of olives in Israel. Um, they can even, you know, process the foods. That's fine as well, so long as it's all done not for profit. So there are a number of reasons given for the Shemitah. Maimonides writes that the reason is it teaches us that we don't really own the land. Everything belongs to God. You think you have your land every seven years, remember, it's not yours. Anyone can come get it. Anyone can come take stuff. It, the, the land doesn't really belong to you because ultimately the Torah says, God says, the land is mine. It's my land. It's not your land. The land belongs to me. It doesn't truly belong to you. Everything belongs to God. And um, it really reminds us of that. We Jews always try to remember, we have a tradition, that whenever we write our name on anything, right? You write, this belongs to, you write your name on something. We always write first the letters, Lamed Hey Vav, which is an acronym. It stands for a verse in tw chapter 24 of Psalms, La Hashem Ha'aretz Umla'o. The earth and everything in it belongs to God. So before you write your name on anything, you always write, the earth and everything in it belongs to God in care of yourself. That's essentially what you're saying. This belongs to God in care of me right now. But everything belongs to God. Nothing belongs to ourselves. So we have to remember that. So the Shemitah reminds us of that. Another more practical reason given is that it's a chance to give the land to rest, to reproduce its nutrients. It gives the land a little rest. Um, letting the rest, land rest is something that's done by farmers today as well, right? That they kind of switch around land, switch crops, or give the land a year rest in order for it to regenerate its nutrients. It also gives the farmer time to focus on God. They have more time during this year. They're not farming. They're able to study Torah. They're able to pray. So it gives the farmers extra time. Another very powerful reason is it teaches us to rely on God. God ultimately provides for us. We think that we produce. We think that we are the ones that build our own businesses, succeed in our own, build our own farms. We're the ones producing. We're not. As the Talmud points out, when you put the seed in the ground, you don't know if the seed's going to grow. You're relying on God. All you could do is plant. It may grow. 
It may not. You don't make it grow. God makes it grow. You just put everything in place for it to grow. I have a friend who's an orthopedic surgeon um, who used to live in this community, and he once told me that, you know, people, doctors are very, often tend to be very um, arrogant. You know, they're able to save people's lives, help people, improve people's lives. He said he's an orthopedic surgeon. He said, people always thank me after, you know, their bones were shattered and I'm able to put it, I put them back together. They thank me. I say, I didn't do anything. All I did was I said it. And then your body put it back together. I can't make the bones go back together. I could just put them in the right spot. And then your body could make it go back together. God makes it go back together. I can't do it. And the same is really true in every part of life. That we think we do it, but we don't really do it. God does it. We just put the things in place. But it's not our genius or our hard work that produces our success. It's God that produces success. God won't make us successful without working hard. He made that a precondition. But a lot of people work hard and are not successful. In fact, many people work hard for their entire lives and are successful for just a short time in their lives. Most successful people are not successful their entire lives. They're successful for a period of their lives. They do very well. And is that because they started working less hard or they became less smart? No, our successes are all up to God. God decides whether we're successful or not. So when God says, rest the seventh year, rely on me, it reminds you that even the six years when you're working, it all belongs to, it all, it all depends on me, it all depends on God. It's all up to God, it's not up to us. We don't make things grow, we don't produce our success, God produces our success. So it's a regular reminder. Another reason given is that it is to bring equality. Many societies throughout history have struggled between what's called the landed class and the non-landed class, people that own land, people that don't own land. People that own land tend to be wealthier. There's only a limited amount of land. Um, and uh, they're, they often use the land to become wealthier and wealthier. Um, living off the work of the people that don't own land. It's created a lot of friction over the years in various societies. Um, this, every seven years, it brings everyone back together. No one year, every seven years, nobody owns land. At least farmland. Nobody owns the land. And finally, we're told that the goal is to experience a world without financial worry. How are you going to eat? Where's the food going to come from? God's going to take care of it. And this prepares us for a reality that we believe we're waiting for, we spoke about in this week's parsha, when everything will be taken care of for us, we won't have to work that hard, and it's a taste for the coming of Moshiach, when we will have a time of rest, we'll be able to focus on spirituality, and everything will take care of itself, we'll presumably have to work a little, but everything will be very easy, we won't have to work too hard. Yes, Don? No, there's no prohibition of buying or purchasing or selling land anywhere during the Shemitah year, including the land of Israel. 
the rules of the Shemitah year are only regarding planting and plowing. And so they have nothing to Working do the land. And even then, or anything of that nature, even, e- even then it's only in the land of Israel and not outside of Israel. So for the first 1,500 years or so of Judaism, most Jews, and this is until the destruction of the Second Temple, most Jews were farmers. They lived in Israel. Oh, during by Second Temple period, many Jews had become um, had become urbanized, but they were still majority of Jews were still farmers farming the land of Israel, and they kept the many agricultural laws in the Torah the various laws of tithes and the first fruit we spoke about last week, as well as resting every seventh year. They didn't do such a good job with the Shemitah. We know that's why the prophets say they were exiled. But generally, they kept the Shemitah. They were farmers in the land of Israel. They kept Shemitah. Once we were exiled from the land of Israel after the destruction of the Second Temple in the year 70, and then we had another war about 60 years later, a second war with the Romans, and then... Rome adopted Christianity, and by the early 300s, the Jews were kicked off the land. Those that were still left were almost entirely kicked off the land in the land of Israel. Jews were no longer able to own land in what was now Christian Roman Empire, and um, there were many anti-Jewish laws, and so Jews no longer farmed in the land of Israel. So we stopped keeping the Shemitah year, the um, laws of um, resting the land. There were various times in history where a handful of people managed to make it back to Israel, purchase land and farm. We find a handful of places where it's mentioned that people observed the Shemitah, Jews owned farms in Israel and observed the Shemitah year. But we really didn't own farms in large numbers until the 1880s. In 1882, there was a movement, a very strong movement, that started in Eastern Europe called Bilu. Bilu was a precursor to what later became known as Zionism. But Bilu got encouraged Jews to move, purchase land in the land of Israel. Um, they uh, were supported by some wealthy French Jews and purchased land in the land of Israel and built settlements in the land of Israel, farming settlements in the land of Israel, and moved Jews back to Israel. And so 1882 was the first Aliyah. Three towns were founded in 1882, and over the next decade or so, another dozen or so towns were founded, and soon there were, these were all farming communities. There was Petach Tikva, there was Moza, Mikveh Yisrael, a handful of early farming communities in the land of Israel. 1889, or 1889, or Taf Reish Mem Tet 5-6-4-9 was a Shemitah year, was the first Shemitah year after the new settlements had been settled in the land of Israel. And a big debate arose among most Jews at the time still lived in Europe. A big debate arose among the Jews in Europe. Should those, what should those farm settlements do? When they had just started their farms, they had just gotten them going. Could they survive? They were struggling financially. Could they survive financially without plowing, planting for a year, without working for a year? So there were some scholars in Europe that had a suggestion 
that what they could do is they could sell the land to non-Jews for the year of Shemitah, similar to what we do before Passover. Before Passover, we're forbidden from owning chametz over Passover. If you own chametz over Passover, you're not allowed to use that chametz after Passover. But you have good beers or good whiskeys that you don't, they're all grain-based, they're all chametz, you don't want to throw out. So what you could do is you can lock it up somewhere, sell it to a non-Jew, have the non-Jew give a down payment. We usually have the rabbi give the rabbi, appoint him as our agent to do it on our behalf, have the non-Jew give a down payment on it and promise to pay the rest within eight days, nine days. And then after Passover, you go back to the non-Jew and you ask the non-Jew, please pay me the rest. And the non-Jew then says, you know what? I don't have the money for all that whiskey. Instead, I will sell it back to you. And then you buy it back for the money that he owes you, plus a little bit more, what he gave for the down payment, plus a little bit more, so the non-Jew makes a little money off the deal. And that way you didn't own chametz over Passover. Simple solution. The why we could do, they suggested, why don't we do the same thing for the Shemitah year? We can sell the land. It belongs to non-Jews. The people could continue working it. They can sell, they could work the land on behalf of these non-Jews, get paid from the profits, like sharecroppers, <laughs> at least get paid partially from the profits, give some of it to the non-Jew that owns, owns the land, and then buy it back after the Shemitah year. However, give me a moment. However, there were a number of problems with this. Firstly, many scholars said, who says, even if it belongs to non-Jews, that Jews are allowed to work the land? Chametz were not allowed to own on Passover. But Shemitah, the issue is working the land of Israel. doesn't matter who owns it. Furthermore, they question whether the sale even works. Chametz, you can sell it. Why? Because it's a real sale. What happens if the non-Jew comes back at the end of Passover and says, I'm coming up with the money, give me your whiskey. You'd give it to him. You were hoping that he would buy it back from, that he would sell it back to you. But if he doesn't, not the end of the world. But what if the non-Jew comes at the end of the Shemitah year and says, I, ca I came up with the money, give me the land. Would you sell it? To, would you, I, I don't, I'm, not giving, I'm not selling you back the land. Would you be okay with that? No. So it doesn't work. It works for chametz, which is small money. It doesn't work for real estate. Furthermore, they pointed out, there's a prohibition. One of our commandments in the Torah is, lo which is, it's forbidden to sell land in Israel to non-Jews. It's the land that God gave to the Jewish people. We're not allowed to sell it to a non-Jew. It's a Torah prohibition. So there were some scholars that said, nonetheless, we can still sell the land. However, most were very skeptical, did not believe that that allowed the farmers to work during the Shemitah year, including most of the rabbis in Jerusalem at the time. In, this is the 18, in 1889. Regardless, the farmers were in a tough situation. They didn't know if they could survive the year. 
And so the farms that year sold to non-Jews and they, um, most of them sold to non-Jews and, um, the non and they continued to work the land. And so for the next couple decades, many farms in Israel, as Jews bought more and more land with the beginning of the Zionist movement and the um, Karen Kayemet, the Jewish National Fund, um, that was charged with purchasing large amounts of land um, and today owns a big chunk of Israel's land. Um, they purchased huge amounts of land and built farms. And so in the early years of Israel, most farms sold to non-Jew and worked the Shemitah, to non-Jews and worked in the Shemitah with the support of Rav Cook, who was the first chief rabbi in modern times of the land of Israel. Um, however, there were many scholars that were against this, believed that it was mistaken in Jewish law. And um, in fact, most scholars believed it was mistaken. And there were many farms, many of more pious farmers, farmers that were ready to take the risk, that did not sell their land to non-Jews and did not work, rested in the seventh year. And there were many, uh, it was hard for them, it was challenging, they, they, whether they raised funds, raised um, funds from charity, they had a charity fund to support those farmers that observed Shemitah, um, or they managed to make enough during six years in order to rest for the seventh, but there were many farms that um, were careful to keep Shemitah. Over the years, and when Israel first became a state, a very big percentage of the state was farmers. Israel, Jew, uh, the in the um, citizens of Israel were mostly rural, mostly living on farms in kibbutzim and moshavim, in towns and settlements where they were farmers. Today, most of Israel has become urbanized. Jews don't do too well on farms for some reason. They don't like farming. Um, and so there are still farms in Israel, but not all that many left. There are still a lot, but not all that many. Um, over the years, it became a lot, farms did better financially, it became easier to keep the Shemitah year, and more and more farms stopped relying on the, what's called the Heter Mechira, selling the land to non-Jews, and would, um, and would rest in the seventh year. Today, the majority of farms in Israel rest in the seventh year. There are still a significant number of farmers that rely on the Israeli rabbinate selling their fields to non-Jews and continue to work it in the seventh year. There is also today in Israel, um, the Israeli rabbinate organizes what's called Otsar, Otsar Bestin that we explained earlier, um, a co-op where they pay the farmers to work the land for those fruit that grew on their own, for those things that grew on their own and produce wine and produce olive oil, and then they sell it in stores at cost price, um, just enough to be able to give the farmers essentially pay for their labor. Um, the, the farmers and the factories pay for their labor. They're sold in Israel at cost price. Those have to be eaten with the holiness of Israel and cannot be removed from the country. So there is, though, a workaround that many farms in Israel do regardless. And that is, the prohibition is only planting the land of Israel. But anything not planted in the land is not forbidden to is not forbidden to plant and harvest so long as you're not using the land 
Today, much of Israel's farming is more technologically advanced farming. In other words, there's less and less of the cornfields in Israel. They don't have all that much. There's more and more of it is technologically advanced farming that brings in more money with less, with less acreage. And so most of that technologically advanced farming are, is hothouse farming. In hothouse farming, most everything is put in, plant, in pot plants, essentially. Everything is put in pots. And so nothing is touching the ground. Nothing is on the ground that's in these plants. So that is permitted to use in the land of Israel. There's also a large amount of hydroponics in Israel, which are also in pots, in water. Um, also, that is not forbidden to work in the Shemitah year, and those can, they continue to work through the Shemitah year as well. And so many of those farms do not have to keep Shemitah at all. The laws of Shemitah don't apply to them. So today in Israel, when you go to Israel, um, you'll see next year during the Shemitah year, you will see there will be things that will say they are not from Shemitah at all, in that they're imported from outside the country, or even from in the land of Israel, they're imported from Gaza, from southern Israel that, are, that is further south from where was of Eilat and southern Israel. There are areas they import from. Um, or, so you'll see things that are not Shemitah at all. There are also foods that are hydroponics or hothouse foods that are not Shemitah at all. There will be food that is Otzer Bezdin, that is produced by the Bethdin, that has the holiness of Shemitah and must be eaten with special holiness, cannot be destroyed, um, has to be buried. Um, you can put it in the garbage, but it has to make sure it goes into a landfill. It cannot be destroyed. Um, it also cannot be brought outside the land of Israel. Um, it also cannot be kept long term. Once there is no more available of that Shemitah year, it cannot be kept longer. Um, and uh, there's a deadline by when you have to get rid of each one. Uh, they announce it in Israel. Um, and then you can also purchase what, um, food from farms that were sold to non-Jews based on the Heter Mechira, based on the selling, and uh, you'll, it will usually say in the fruit store where their fruit is coming from, um, so you have all those different options when you pr purchase fruit today in the land of Israel. Regardless, unless it's hydroponics, it cannot be exported um, outside of the land. Well, there is. There's the um, Heter Mechira, the, the stuff that's sold, um, but you can, that can be exported. Um, someone asked about the etrogs. Um, a lot of our etrogs come from the land of Israel. Etrogs that come from the land of Israel, um, you have the same problem. If some of it will rely on being sold, that um, is questionable. Some, uh, some of it um, is what grew on its own during the Shemitah year, and uh, those etrogs cannot be exported. They can be used in Israel, but they cannot be exported. Um, and then there are those etrogs, and then there are etrogs that come from outside the land of Israel. A big percentage of our etrogs don't come from Israel at all, or come from hydroponics, uh, from um, pot plants, where it's planted in a way, the trees are planted in hothouses, or in a way where they're not directly touching the ground. Yes, Don? Is there any proven benefit to the I believe so, and I believe it's done today um, around the world. I'm sorry, 
I believe so. I'm not, I don't know much about farming, but I do believe that there's a benefit to the land. And that farms today, everywhere in the world, do that, where they leave farm, they leave parts of the farm fallow for various periods of time to help it regenerate. When I was 17, I worked on the farmland in Israel. Huh? On the kibbutz, yeah, I used to pick oranges and apples and everything. Prickly pear. Any other questions? Did they have any pears? Yes, Debbie. You have a very good point, and that's why a lot of people are, a lot of scholars were against this. And it's a debate every year in Israel whether they should do it, they shouldn't do it. Um, it's, it's something that's been debated for many years in Israel. Um, in fact, there's a lot of politics in Israel about selling the land. It, it's, it's, it's been a big issue for almost a hundred years, o over a hundred years, it's been a big issue. Yes, Andy. I think that's an interesting question. Genetically engineered plants an interesting question of its own, what, the Jew, what Jewish law says about it, uh, beyond our topic for today. Um, but again, the, the advantage of the pot plants for our topic today, for Shemitah, is simply that they're not in the ground of the land of Israel. They're above ground. Yes, Carol. That's a good question, but that's for another time. So there is another part to Shemitah, which is, we mentioned it earlier, that during Shemitah, in addition to the um, land having to lie fallow in the land of Israel for a year, also the, our loans are absolved, are absolved during the Shemitah year. Now this is a rule that applies not only in the land of Israel, but everywhere, loans of, from one Jew to another. And when Jews l lend each other money, they're not allowed to lend on interest. It has to be interest-free. Um, but loans from one Jew to another um, are absolved every seven years. Now, that actually doesn't happen at the beginning of the Shemitah year, but it rather happens at the end of the Shemitah year. So now that's going to be next year, when the Shemitah year ends, um, in a year from now, any loans that are already due not loans that don't yet have a due date, but loans that are already due are automatically absolved when Rosh Hashanah comes of the new cycle. All loans from one Jew to another are absolved. There is a workaround to ensure that our loans, that we don't lose our loans to other Jews. There is a workaround called a prusbal um, that we have been using for many years. And so um, we'll talk about that. God willing, we'll do a class on the Prusbal and the absolving of loans next year when it becomes relevant. And it will be relevant in another year from now. So we mentioned a number of reasons why God told us to lie the, to, that the lie, land should lie fallow during the Shemitah year. But in addition to the land lying fallow, the year itself of Shemitah is called a holy year. 
It's called like a Shabbos year. Just as we have Shabbos every seven days, we have Shabbos every seven years. So it's a Shabbos year. So just as we have, it's a holy year. The year itself is holy. And not only is that in the land of Israel, but that is everywhere. Wherever we may be, the land is, the, sorry, the year is a holy year. It's a special time, and it says, Shabbos la Hashem. It's a time for God. So while we always dedicate time to God, and we have every week a special day dedicated to God, this year is a year that is dedicated to God. One of the reasons given earlier for the farmers to um, not work the land was that they should have more time to focus on God, on studying God's Torah, on, coming, on praying three times a day, on serving God. So that doesn't only apply to farmers in the land of Israel, that is for all of us. We all, during this year, it's a holy year, it's a time for all of us to increase in our holiness. Shabbos year-round. Now, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't work. We're allowed to work throughout the year, except for on Shabbos and the holidays. Um, we're allowed to work if we're not farmers in the land of Israel. Um, we could do our regular work, but even then, we should make it holier than a regular year with extra study, extra prayer, extra mitzvahs. Make this year extra holy. We are told that God, why did God tell us that every seven days we should have Shabbos. Six days you work, and the seventh day you rest. And the same thing also, six years you work, and the seventh year you rest. Why? So the goal is that when we work for six days and rest on the seventh, it's not just that the seventh day is holy. It's that we're working for six days in order to then rest on the seventh. So every day then becomes holy. We're bringing holiness into our entire week. The week becomes holy because every week at the end of the week, we end with a Shabbos. We have Shabbos at the end of the week. It makes the whole week holy. It makes the whole week special. We're working towards Shabbos, counting our days by Shabbos. And that's why when we count in Hebrew, the names of the days of the week are Yom Rishon, Yom Sheni, Yom Shlishi, Yom Revi'i, Yom Chamishi, Yom Shishi. We say day one is Sunday, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. That's how we call the days of the week, even today in modern Hebrew. Why? We're counting how many days it's been from Shabbos, from the last Shabbos, right? Day one since Shabbos, day two since Shabbos. Right? Every day we're counting Shabbos because we bring the holiness of Shabbos into the entire week. The same is also with the years. We have one holy year every seven years to make all the other six years holy as well, make our entire lives holy. So we're about to next week enter a Shemitah year that we don't live in the land of Israel. It's time for all of us to rededicate or to um, commit to increasing our Torah study increasing prayer times. We don't yet come to shul, go to shul on a regular basis, come more regularly. If we go to one class every week, add a class, do another class, encourage others as well to join um, Torah classes. And it's really a time for us to increase in our spirituality.